Mm. Amen. Well, that was just awesome. Tell you, that's my favorite hymn. Thank you. Did you know that? Who knows what hymn that was? Who wrote that hymn? Oh, come on. Because he lives. I mean, Bill and Gloria Gaither. You know, Casey always raises his hand because he's back there with the slides, and it tells you on the slide. Oh, you didn't even have that. That's right. He didn't have that. So I got to give you credit. He knew. That's good. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. We're going to be closing out chapter 1 and starting into chapter 2. I've been preaching through the Timothys this summer at the chapel and started with 2 Timothy. And you're probably saying, why did you do that? I hadn't figured it out myself. Actually, there's one verse in 2 Timothy that I wanted to become the basis for everything else that is taught in First and 2 Timothy. In fact, I would encourage you to memorize this verse. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Anybody know it? Somebody say it. Did you say yes? Who said yes? He got 17 too, so where'd he go? Did everybody hear him? Did you hear him? All Scripture is inspired, God-breathed, and profitable. So two things about Scripture, it's inspired, it's breathed by God, it's profitable, there's benefit to it, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Then he went on into into verse 17, so that the man of God, the person of God, would be adequate, equipped for every good work. So that's the basis for our study of Scripture. So we come to 1 Timothy and We started in 1 Timothy a week or two ago. We're into verse 18 now. But Paul is going to give Timothy some marching orders. And I couldn't help this week but think about the song we used to do in children's church when I used to lead youth groups to do backyard Bible clubs and all that. And that was the Lord's Army. I may never. Anybody know that? March. You know it. Don't act like you don't. You want to come up here and do it? There's motions to it. Who knows? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. We've got to teach the young people this song. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never, this is my favorite part, fly over the enemy because I'm in the Lord's army. So my question for you this morning is, are you in the Lord's army? If you're a child of God, if if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're in. Timothy's in. So Paul gives Timothy a command And then we'll unpack the rest of the Scripture. Let me just read this passage to you, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Humanius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. 
This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So the marching orders start with Timothy being encouraged to fight for the faith. Paul says, this command I give you, it is if the command has come to Paul, he's passing it on to Timothy. Command's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Anybody served in the military? Any veterans or current people serving in the military? There you go. All right, what's your name? John. So when your commanding officer gives you a command, at what point do you say, you raise your hand and say, I'd like to put this to a vote? <laughs> you don't work like that. And that's exactly the word here. This is a word, command. It doesn't mean, Timothy, this is negotiable. Have your secretary call my secretary, see if we can work this out. No, this is a command translated a sense of urgent military order. It's not open for debate. It's not open for do you want to do it or do you not? You don't get a vote. And so Paul says, I give you a command. I entrust to you. The word entrust means to place alongside or to make a deposit. So here's the cool thing. Paul, who loves Timothy as a beloved son, is saying, Timothy, I'm giving you something that I've been given. It's a deposit. I'm placing with you for safekeeping. When you go to the bank and make a deposit, don't you count on that bank guarding the deposit that you place there? If you go back three months later and show them your bank book and say, I've got $3,000 in this bank, you're not expecting them to say, yeah, we're not sure what happened to that. We had a computer glitch and all the money's gone. No, that's probably because the branch manager ran off with it. No, a deposit. So Timothy's given, Paul has given Timothy a command. He's entrusting him. And later in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, you're passing this on to others. And I love what he says, Timothy, my son. Where Timothy means dear to God. Timothy was dear to God, but he was also dear to Paul. Paul viewed Timothy as his child in the faith. Timothy had a godly grandmother, a godly mother who led him to the point of faith. Paul had taken it up from there, led him to faith in Christ. And now Timothy is a minister in the church. So Timothy, I entrust this to you according with the prophecies previously made. Timothy had already been prophesied over. This reminds me of Acts chapter 13 when it says that they were at the church in Antioch. They were ministering to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to the work I've called them. Timothy could look back on his life and know, I know, I know that I know that I've been called of God to the ministry he's called me to. And so Paul's just strengthening the resolve within Timothy. If you're a child of God, you're called. Not just the preachers, not just the people on church staff, not just the missionaries in another country, but there's a call on your life. What happens when the going gets tough? Here's what you do. I call this look myself in the mirror moments. When you come back and look yourself in the mirror and say, God, am I doing what you call me to do? Because I promise you, if you try to do ministry on behalf of God, you will face opposition. If you haven't, maybe you're not doing it right. <laughs> You'll face opposition. 
what happens when you face opposition? We don't turn tail and run. We come back and say, God, am I doing what you call me to do? Because my basis is not the approval of men or women. My basis is, am I pleasing my Lord and Savior? And so Paul says, Timothy, I'm leaving this command that I've entrusted to you according to the prophecies made over you. you and by that, by that, fight the good fight. Keeping the faith. Literally holding the faith. Everybody, everybody show me your fist. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 says, Hold fast the confession of your faith without any wavering, for he who promised is faithful. i got a reason I want you to make a fist right now, because in a minute you're going to undo your fist, and I want to show you an illustration. You ever gone and tried to take something out of a two-year-old's hand? What do you get? They've got teeth by now. If you try to take it away from them, they will bite you. And that's what I want the devil to see in the lives of men and women who are children of God. I want them to see, him to see, we're holding fast to the faith. We're not letting go of it. So Paul is reminding Timothy, Timothy, you've been called into ministry. So keep the faith with a good conscience. But some have rejected, do that. That's what it literally means. It's kind of a violent motion to push off or reject, to, re, to tr- thrust away or, re, or refuse. So we're going to hold fast to it. We're not going to say, uh-uh, and throw it away. And Paul wasn't afraid to call people out. He said, some have rejected. They've thrust it away. They've cast it out. Here's the problem. Some of the people he's going to mention were leaders in the church. He mentions Humanius and Alexander. He mentions Humanius and, and another guy, Philetus, back over in Second Timothy. Bad theology has its roots in bad morals. Here's what can happen in the church. Somebody that's a teacher in the church, maybe an elder in the church, or just a church member, decides they'd rather live like the world, so they will change their theology to make their sin more acceptable in their eyes. It's not more acceptable in God's eyes. The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It doesn't change. It's not shifting like a shadow. God's not that way. His word's not that way. And so Paul says to Timothy, you hold fast because there's some that are reject. There's some who are in the church right now, Timothy, who are rejecting the faith. And let me tell you something. Satan loves to attack the church. The church is the bride of Christ. You as a member of the church are a child of God. Satan can't touch God. But he thinks somehow if I can hurt his children, it hurts God. Some have rejected. They've suffered shipwrecked in regard to their faith. They've literally now are stranded. They're shipwrecked. And Paul names them. Leaders in the church, which needs to be a warning to pastors and elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and small group leaders and worship leaders and all of us. That we're not immune from temptation. And so we got to come back to, am I holding fast to the faith or am I allowing the world to loosen my grip? Because the reason I hold fast to my faith, Hebrews 13, 1 again, is because he who promised is faithful. What's God done? God's grip doesn't let up. Satan can't snatch you out of his hand. So Timothy, hold fast. You, men and women, hold fast. 
Don't be like these that he's named that have let go. In fact, really pushed it aside and said, I'd rather have the world than Jesus. And he says, I've turned some of them over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Matthew 18 tells us what to do when there's a problem in the church. The first thing you do is you go to that person and try to make it right. If they don't repent, then you take two or three with you. You try to keep the circle small. You try to make things right. Get that person back to live in the life they're supposed to live. And if that doesn't work, you take it to the church. And if they reject that, what do we do? You treat them like they're an outsider. Paul says, Humanius and Alexander, that's exactly what I've done. I've turned them outside the church. I've excommunicated them. They're no part, not a part of the church anymore. And I hope they learn their lesson. In fact, the word taught means to train up, usually using physical punishment. In fact, it's the same word that Pilate used over in Luke's gospel when he says, I found no guilt in this man, but just to kind of satisfy the crowd, he said, I'll punish him. How did he punish him? He beat him. So Paul said, I pray that these men would be taught not to blaspheme God, literally to speak against God, to take God's name in vain. You know, you can do that at church. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not take the Lord your God's name in vain. To take means to lift up. Vain means empty. So the way you take God's name in vain is you lift it up as meaning absolutely nothing. We can do that in worship. You know that? When you're singing songs that aren't part of your testimony, when you're singing songs that your heart's not right, maybe you need to sit down and get your heart right before you sing the song. Don't lift up the name of God as meaning nothing. So Humanius and Alexander, Paul says, I'm, I'm turning them over to the enemy so they could learn a lesson and quit misrepresenting divine truth. The second thing, then, we fight in prayer. Paul had commanded Timothy and the church to guard the gospel, to celebrate the gospel, and to fight for the gospel. And the place you start is with prayer. Paul says in verse 1, first of all, first in priority, foremost, this is, Timothy, my first instruction to you and to doing what I'm about to ask you to do is pray. I urge. And he gives four elements of prayer. First is entreaties. This is a petition, literally to beg. The root word is to lack. In other words, it means this. It means when you don't have what you need, somebody needs to entreat Almighty God on your behalf. You need to entreat God to supply what your need to be in need of something. So entreaties, Paul encourages Timothy, entreat the Lord. Also in prayer, just a general word for prayer, but also carries an element of worship and praise. Petitions. It's only used a couple of times in Scripture. Again, in, later in this letter, it refers to getting involved in someone's life and an interview to know what's going on in someone's life and take that need to the Lord, to petition God. And then the fourth thing, not only entreaties and prayers and petitions, but thanksgiving. Don't raise your hand, but be honest. How many times do you pray for something and God answers your prayer and you forget to thank Him? We need to be grateful. We need to express gratitude back to God. That's one reason it's good and helpful at times to keep a prayer list or a prayer journal. 
where you can look back and see what you've prayed and how God has answered that prayer. What bothers me about that is I've prayed with people on serious things before. Two weeks later, they're saying, you're not going to believe it. What, what, what am I not going to believe? God answered the prayer. Like, really? He's God. <laughs> He's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you could ask or think. So don't be so surprised when God shows up as God. But thank Him. Spend as much time thanking God for His goodness as you do asking Him for stuff. And he says, first of all, Timothy, these prayers, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving should need to be made on behalf of all men. Not just those that are close to us. For all men. One of the motivations for our prayer life should be the passion of God for the nations. And he, he mentions specifically for kings and those in authority. We, we don't have a king, but Paul certainly had a king that, that lorded over him at the time. Paul had gone up in front of those in authority and had been mistreated. Paul's in jail as he writes this letter. He'll eventually get out of jail, and before he writes 2 Timothy, he's in a dungeon, the worst place he's ever going to be, literally weeks or months from death. He's going to eventually, most scholars think he was decapitated, killed. And yet Paul says those are the people we need to pray for. So prayer needs to be on behalf of all men and women, but especially the leaders who get forgotten. And so Paul says pray on behalf of kings and those in authority. You know what? It's hard to hate somebody that you're praying for. God will probably change your heart about the individual if you pray for them. Pray for those in authority over you. And then here's this one word. It's two words in English. So that. Timothy, here's why I'm asking you to pray for this purpose. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And there's a little more to the so that in the next point. But Paul's asking that we pray that we could have a tranquil life, literally the outside, the absence of outside disturbances, and a quiet life, absence of internal disturbances. Now, does that mean everybody's going to love you and everything's going to be peace and hunky-dory? No, it wasn't the truth in Paul's life either. Paul was leaving, leading a life in prison. Now, he somewhat quiet and tranquil. They allowed him, at least in the prison of First Timothy, allowed him guest. It was almost more like a house arrest. He had the opportunity to dictate letters, and I'm sure Paul was witnessing the people in jail. But a, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So the way we live our lives in godliness and dignity will speak volumes to the people we're praying for. Two questions before we move to the last point. Do you want to have influence on people? Whether it's the authorities over you or perhaps some loved one in your life that you know they don't know Jesus. Yes, you need to tell them the truth. Yes, you need to live it out in front of them. But are you praying for them? You want to have influence on people? Pray for them. Secondly, Paul said that we could have a quiet and tranquil life. Pray for people in non-peaceful situations. There are believers in the world today that are being persecuted, literally beaten, imprisoned, and even put to death because they claim the name of Jesus. Pray for them. Pray for them. 
last thought. Fighting for salvation. Paul says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. So in other words, what Paul just told Timothy to do, he's saying this is approved by God. It's good and acceptable. It's agreeable in the face of God who desires all men to be saved. This isn't a will of decree. This is a will of desire. Because some will step back from this and say, okay, God wants everybody to be saved. That, that's universalism. So the question is, is everybody going to be saved? I remember as a teenager, I had a, a group ask me the question, Robert, are going to be more people in heaven or more people in hell? I thought, well, I think God's going to win. There'll be more people in heaven. Then you read the verse that says, narrow is a road that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many are those who find it. No, we don't believe in universalism. Jesus said in John 3, after, after verse 16 in John 3, verse 36, he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. But God wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. We, are, we live in a culture that is offended by the claims of knowing absolute truth. And I've even had somebody say, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Well, some things may fit that criteria, but absolute truth is absolute truth, whether you believe it or not, whether you apply it to your life or not. One thing I know about God is there's one. There's one God. Acts 4.12 says this, And there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So if you're living a kind of life and you're saying, Robert, I get this Jesus stuff you're talking about, that's good for you, but I'm dancing to the beat of my own drummer. There's only one God, and his name is Jesus. And I want you to see what Jesus has done for us. This is the most powerful part of the message. This has been all over my mind this week. There's one God and one mediator between God and men. A mediator is a go-between, a reconciler. I want you to catch this. Only Jesus could be the mediator that he was. Fully God, fully man. He can mediate between God and man like no other. There's one God, there's one mediator. The man, Christ Jesus. Paul uses that phrase a lot. Christ Jesus. You kind of think, wouldn't one word be enough? Well, yeah, we know who he's talking about. But the word Christ means anointed one or Messiah. The name Jesus was his earthly name. So when you use the phrase Christ Jesus, you're acknowledging his divinity and his humanity. That's who our mediator is. And he is still our mediator. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a mediator, a go-between with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If the thought has never hit your mind that you didn't approach God on your own, it's because of Jesus we have any access to God. He's our mediator. And it even gets better. He gave himself a ransom for all. Why did there have to be a ransom? 
Ransom means a price paid, a value given to free someone. It, it means to loose. Here's why there had to be a ransom. God is righteous and he hates sin. And God's not going to wink at sin. He's not going to sweep it under the carpet. He's not going to pull a Phil Donahue. Half of you don't know who Phil Donahue is, but I was watching a Phil Donahue show one time. He had preachers on the stage, and he basically said, here's how I think it's going to go down in heaven. I think God's going to look at us and go, come on. If you believe that about God, you don't know God. God's done better than that. God has paid the price. Jesus lived a life you and I couldn't live. He lived a perfect life without sin. And he paid a debt you and I could not pay. He became our ransom. And I love the word gave. He gave himself a ransom. When they're crossing the Kidron Valley after the prayer in the garden, Jesus knew where he was headed. He was about to be arrested. Put in a dungeon. Back and forth between Herod and Pilate. Ultimately, he's going to die on the cross. And Peter comes up and whacks a dude's ear off. Jesus says, don't you know, I could have called like 70,000 angels. How many angels would it have taken? I'm thinking one. If Jesus wanted to at that moment, he could have said no. But see, he had already prayed the prayer. God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from you. Men and women, there was no other way. If, there, if there's another way than Jesus and God's mercy and grace, if there was another way, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. But what else did Jesus pray in the garden? Not my will, but your will be done. When he walked out of the garden, he knew where he was going. He gave himself a ransom. He's the value. He's the price paid on my behalf and your behalf. Not only is he mediator, he's the ransom. And Paul said, that's why I was appointed. The preacher and apostle Paul said, I didn't, I didn't pick this line of work for myself. I was appointed. <laughs> preacher and an apostle and then it puts these little parentheses i'm telling the truth i'm not lying apparently this letter would not be just privately for timothy it was going to be for the church to hear and understand and for paul to say here's who i am and here's who i'm endorsing in this church at ephesus my beloved son timothy who i've commanded and entrusted with this message i'm a teacher of the gentiles that isn't where paul started Back when Paul's name was Saul, he was persecuting Christians. And then he started, after coming to faith in Christ, really started back at the synagogue trying to convert Jews. And his mission got changed. Paul became a missionary to the Gentiles. The people, quite honestly, as a Jew, he didn't care much for. Yet that's who God called him to, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So let's pray together. Paul encouraged Timothy to entreat, to petition, to pray, and to thanksgiving. I'm going to be quiet for a moment. I just want you to fulfill this scripture right here. It may be that God places a face or a name on your heart today. Maybe somebody in your group you're sitting near. It may be somebody back home. It may be somebody at work. Who would God want you to pray for today? Let's pray for salvation of that individual. I'll be quiet. I'll close this in just a moment.
God, the great thing about you is there's people praying all over this auditorium, and you're able to hear, distinguish, and know each one individually. And God, for names that are being prayed for today, whether it's those in authority, or a dear loved one, a neighbor, a classmate, a fellow youth group member, somebody in the church, somebody outside the church, God, we pray, first of all, for their salvation, that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And God, we also pray that you would strengthen churches that are under attack today. Give us the resolve to live a life of godliness. And God, we pray for men and women who are being persecuted all across the world today. Some are having to find places to worship that are in private because at any moment the doors could break open and they could be beaten or imprisoned. God, would you strengthen those people? Would you protect those people? And yes, Lord Jesus, would you quickly come for your people? We love you. Thank you that you first loved us. In Christ's name, amen. I invite you to stand as we close.